everyone followed him. He was a Democrat of Democrats. He was given the freedom of Athens, conferred upon him as a recognition of what a fine, far-thinking, broad-minded man he was. But in the Mediterranean, there was one people that stood out like a sore thumb. They wouldn't eat Gentile food. They wouldn't dress in a Gentile way. They wouldn't play games and indulge in sport in the Greek manner. They didn't even like to speak Greek if they could help it. They worshipped God in their own way. They had strange to him barbaric customs like circumcision and other such things. And he came against this people with brutal and ferocious force so that the seven years became forever after an arch type of tribulation. The first three and a half being not so bad, but the last three and a half, he bathed the whole holy land with blood. It was the era of the great Maccabee rebellion and one of the most glorious eras in Jewish history. But I am just saying, here you have a continuous systematic attempt to liquidate this people. Is it not interesting? I tell you something. Whenever the enemy or the forces of darkness and evil take a particular interest in a person or a work, I become immediately interested. I have found so far that although we believers are stupid at times and bring a lot of trouble upon our own silly heads by the things we do and the way we behave, generally speaking, when a man or a woman or a company of people or a work of the Lord is singled out for continuous satanic attack and onslaught, there is something extremely valuable to God in those people, or in that work. Do I have to speak about Rome and its attempt to subjugate the Jewish people? And in the end, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of its temple, the destruction of Jewish national institutions, and the dispersion of the Jewish people into the whole world, the selling, if we believe, Josephus, of nearly a million young Jewish men into slavery. Has the attempt ceased with 70 AD? Would you not have thought that with the destruction of the Jewish people and their dispersion into the whole earth, that then the battle, the attempt to liquidate them would cease? No, not at all. That was only the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the anguish of the Jewish people. And through the next 1,800 years or more, those attempts have increased with ferocity as history has proceeded. Furthermore, this continuous and systematic attempt to assimilate or to destroy, to liquidate this people will not cease until the Messiah comes. We shall be witnesses in these lands of what will be done, first against the Jewish people, and then later against the Christian. All the last 
great battles of human history, if I read my Bible aright, are centered upon this little nation, upon its capital, whether it is that great war that is described in Zechariah 12, which speaks of all the nations being gathered together against Jerusalem to destroy it, because Jerusalem has become a bone of contention to the nations, or whether it is the great war described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we sometimes call it the Gog and Magog War, that great confederacy of evil that will descend from the north upon the land of Israel, or whether it is the well-known final battle of human history, Armageddon, in Hebrew, Har-Megiddo. All these great battles, and maybe others, are centered upon this little land, upon this little nation, upon its capital, Jerusalem. We must take note of this continuous battle. If we do not understand this, its significance, we shall never have an understanding of the times in which we are living. For this nation, as I said earlier this morning, is the time clock of God. It is ticking away. By it, we can tell approximately where we are in the purpose and plan of God. It is the barometer of God. What is happening in this nation and with this nation is a sure indication of the storms that are either going to come upon the whole face of the earth or the better weather that might come. Now I want to move on, if I've carried you with me thus far, to another matter which I find even more significant and perhaps for some of you will be very puzzling. The most remarkable thing of all in these final battles of human history is that God declares that he is behind these battles. Now, get it clear, he doesn't say, I'm using them. He says, almost dare I say it, I am causing them. Oh, now we have a problem. Let me just take you to just one or two scriptures. Take, for instance, Zechariah and chapter 12. Zechariah and chapter 12. Verse 2 and 3. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling unto all the peoples round about, and upon Judah, Judah also shall it be in the siege against Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the peoples, all that burden themselves with it shall be sore wounded, and all the nations of the earth shall be gathered together against it. Verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Listen again, if it's not even more clear. Chapter 14 and verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses 
rifled, and so on. Now, here is a most interesting thing, for it is not that the Lord is saying, I will use the evil, I will somehow turn it to good, but here the Lord actually says, I'm behind this thing, I am behind it. This is the significance of Israel. I am going to use this little nation to confront the whole fallen human society of nations with the fact of myself, of my word, of my purpose, of my counsel that will stand forever. Look again if you want more evidence, but we can't give you too much because we'll be here all night. But in Ezekiel and chapter 38, I want you to listen very carefully. I hope you're not dropping to sleep, but if you are, have a good sleep. <laughs> Ezekiel 38, verse 3. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and I will turn thee about, listen, and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them handling swords. Now, have you noticed that the Lord said, I will put a hook in you. He won't just say to them, come, come. No, he will put a hook. They may not even want to come but he will put a hook in their jaws and will draw them, pulling them, pulling them, pulling them from the far north and from the north and from the other parts of the earth together till he pulls them down upon the mountains of Israel. Listen again. Chapter 39, verse 2, if anybody hasn't got the message. And I will turn thee about and will lead thee on and will cause thee to come up from the uttermost parts of the north, and I will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. Why then should we be afraid of these wars? God is behind them. God is doing something. He is going to bring this whole system, whether it's Marxism or whether it's Khomeinism, he is going to put hooks into its jaws and draw it, pulling it, forcing it into confrontation with this little nation of Israel, three and a half million people. And there, when this huge armed confederacy of, of, of nations and armies will seem to have got this little nation in its grip and will look as if at last the the longing of the PLO to drive these Jews into the sea and to bathe the Holy Land with Jewish blood will be fulfilled, then God will act. And the whole thing will be destroyed in a moment of time upon the mountains of Israel. So it is not just evil. It is evil. It is not just the powers of darkness. It is the powers of darkness. But the law is using this little nation as the magnet 
to draw these great principalities and powers behind the flesh and blood of Marxism, Khomeinism, and every other form of radicalism into conflict with himself. What then is the significance of Israel? It is the evidence of the living God in history. The evidence of the power and purpose of God operative for all time. God has never abdicated. God has never withdrawn. God has a purpose for the nations. And he said, As surely as I live, saith the Lord, the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. He has a plan for the nation. He has a plan for this heaven and earth, for this universe. He has not been thwarted, nor frustrated, nor stalled, nor hindered. You may think that some of these systems are a great hindrance to him, but not the law. He allows them to grow like the wicked, growing like a great banyan tree. Until the time comes that he speaks the word, and it's done. And then these things pass away as if they never were. I was brought up in the Hitler period. The period of Mussolini and Hitler, of Himmler, of Goebbels, of Goering, of all these other demonic characters. But there came a day when suddenly they were swept away and it is as if they were never. Whilst they grew, it seemed as if they had all power, that they were God himself. With a word, they could order the liquidation of thousands of people. With a word, they could cause their survival. But when God finally acted, they're gone. For God is God, and men are men. They are only dust. What is the significance of Israel? I see four things that constitute the significance of Israel. I just give them to you, and you can go away, and you can think about them yourselves and pray about them. But here they are. The first great significance of Israel is this. God's word is true. And his truth endures forever. It is accurate, reliable, and relevant. Now we live in days when so often in our pul the pulpits of Christian churches, whilst the Word of God is called the Word of God, there is an atmosphere that it is not accurate. It is not reliable. Somehow other, therefore, it cannot be totally relevant. There is a tremendous amount about the book which evidently died out with the Dark Ages. Customs and ideas and all the rest of it that somehow has no bearing upon us today in the life that we live. I refute the whole thing. 
In my estimation, the Word of God is the Word of God. And it lives and abides forever. And one of the most remarkable things about Israel is that on a literal level, I know there is a spiritual level, and in my estimation, the spiritual content of the prophecies is the abiding value of them. Nevertheless, there is a physical and literal application of the prophecies. And I find it of tremendous comfort that God has gone to such bother as to specifically speak about certain situations and they are being fulfilled in front of my eyes. What a comfort and what a wisdom God has that he should have reserved this for the last part of the age, which is the most unbelieving of all. So that for those who have an ear to hear and a heart that is tender and are simple and childlike enough to, uh, uh, childlike enough to be pure in spirit, the Word of God can become a rock under our feet upon which we can stand in these days and know that it will be vindicated in its entirety. Many of the theories about God's Word have long ago been exploded, but the Word of God is the one thing that's been vindicated again and again and again and again. I find it interesting when people say to me, now don't get too excited about this thing, about Israel. I mean, I mean, it, it, it is, a, you're getting too literalist. The book is a spiritual book. I have no doubt about it being a spiritual book. All things in the final analysis are spiritual. This world is essentially a spiritual world. Because the forces that abide are the forces behind flesh and blood, behind the things which are seen. But dear friends, when God says in Isaiah 49, a specific word like this, and these shall come from the east, and these from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. I have never yet heard anyone spiritualize these from the land of Sinim. But I'm told by some people this is rather like our appendix. Something that belongs to prehistoric man, they used to say. It has no meaningful function. It was when we crawled about on all fours or whatever it was. And therefore people say, and these from the land of Sinim, well you can't spiritualize that. Some modern uh, liberal theologians have told us that Sinim is to be found in uh, modern Lebanon. Others say in northern Egypt, with not too much evidence. But Jusenius, that greatest of all Hebrew scholars, said that Sinim was the Chinese. And in modern Hebrew, Sinim, the land of Sinim, is the land of the Chinese. And Sinit is Chinese language. And Sin is China. But you say there were never Chinese Jews. Ah, there were. The first record we have of Chinese Jews is in the ninth century after Christ. We read of families of Jews settled in a place called Khotan in Chinese Turkestan in the north. And at the same time in the ninth century, we read of, Chi of Jewish families settled in Canton in South China. 
by the 11th century, we hear of a synagogue built in traditional Chinese style with a Chinese-Jewish cemetery next to it. Can you believe it? Chinese-speaking Jews. And Marco Polo, that most famous of all uh, ancient travelers, wrote in his journal that the emperor has passed edicts concerning Chinese Jews and Muslims. Now, I don't suppose the Chinese emperor was bothered about five Jews within a domain so large as the great middle kingdom of China. I think it must have been that there must have been a sizable community. This synagogue that we, uh, I've spoken of is with us to this day. And there are still 200 Chinese Jews that are associated with it, but they are so intermixed that they are not accepted as Jews uh, by the Orthodox, by the rabbis.